This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Welcome to all of you. My name is Will. I'm the youth and college pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. If this is uh, your first time, if you're a college student just visiting us, brand new, we're so glad that you're here. If you're a college student coming back, welcome back. I remember uh, coming my freshman year to Church of the Resurrection back when we were meeting at Glenbard West High School, and it was so strange and so different than anything I was used to that I did not come back for two years. Um, but then, it, and it was because I heard that Jay Wood went here. That's how I ended up here. Um, but I came back, and this church has really changed my life, and so I hope that if you're new, you stick around and uh, help us uh, talk you through some of the different parts. Um, do you ever have an idea come to your mind and you think it's your own? You think it's really clever and then you realize, wait, I got that idea from somebody else. There's a great story that illustrates this. So around 360 AD, there was a, an, a Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate. And he was nicknamed the Apostate because he had been raised as a Christian and then he rejected the faith as an adult. And he was really troubled that Christianity had, had taken over in the Roman world. He wanted Rome to return to their ancient gods. And so, you know, he had a scribe write a letter to some of the priests of these ancient gods, and he basically said this. He's like, look, you guys are the problem. You guys are the problem because you're spending all your time, you know, in the bars and things like that. You should be helping the poor. What kind of priests are you? So he said, you know, these Christians, they're doing such a good job of taking care of the poor that they're taking care of our poor as well. He's like, this shouldn't be like this. We, you need, I'm gonna send you money, you start taking care of the homeless, and we'll show everybody that this is what our ancient religion has always taught. And there was just one problem. His ancient religion had never taught that. <laughs> I mean, read, read the Iliad, read Plato, read Aristotle. It does not sound like Isaiah 58. You're not gonna see a, a big concern for the poor and the vulnerable in those writings. Those gods did not care about those things. So where did Julian get this idea that worship and justice should go together? He got it from here. He got it from his upbringing. He got it from Christianity. And I, and I share that because our modern world, we're, we're kind of in a, in a similar thing. I mean, if you ask anybody on the street, what makes a religion, any religion, good? They would tell you, is it, a religion is good as if it makes good people, good people that are nice and take care of those who are in need. That's a Christian idea. It came onto the world scene through the Bible. And so, you know, our culture is, is so interested in justice right now. We all agree that justice is important. And then many of us disagree on how to achieve justice and, and what justice entails, all of those kind of things. We get really animated. We use you know, these words like, like critical theory and, and wokeness and, and all these kind of things. We argue about rights and what we should teach in schools and how to address poverty and injustice. And it makes sense that all of these issues animate us. But if I had one prayer for this morning, it's that we would become animated by what's written in the scriptures. Because there's, justice is so central to the biblical story that there's no gospel without talking about justice. 
There's no ministry of Jesus that you can describe that doesn't include justice. And I know that, that for some of us, we start talking about justice in church and, and some of our like, fears and anxieties start to raise. You know, we get a little uncomfortable when church is political, which usually means that whatever the, the preacher's saying is the opposite of what we believe. You know, like you never complain when, that church is political when they're saying what you already think. Okay, I am gonna try to avoid those kind of partisan debates today. I'm gonna try to just present what the Lord is saying about justice in Isaiah 58 and throughout the book of Isaiah as we close this series. And so pray with me one more time. Lord, would you give us ears to hear what you have to say? And Lord, would you give us words words to speak in our culture, in a culture that is so confused and so burdened around these issues? We ask this in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 58. That's page 617 in your pew Bibles. And a little later on, I'm going to jump around in Isaiah, um, the last few chapters of Isaiah, so you'll want that. That's page 617. There's no Jesus without justice. The first thing to notice in this passage is the urgency in, in God's words. Cry aloud, shout, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. You know, a trumpet, like a, like a shofar, you know, a ram's horn that, that Father Brett and, and Seth blow on Easter. It's this loud, arresting noise like, stop. Stop what you're doing and listen. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. And notice what the emergency is. The emergency is not just the presence of injustice. The emergency is that injustice is a sign of something else. It's a sign that the people of God have totally misunderstood the person they're worshiping. Injustice is a sign that they have totally misunderstood who God is and indeed how he wants them to worship. Look at verse 2. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. And at the end of that verse, they ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So verse 3, they say they're confused. You know, they say, why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? I mean, God, you told us to do these things in your law. You told us to do all these things. Why don't you see us? Why doesn't it matter to you? And the response of God in this passage is, you don't know what I want. You've misunderstood me. You've misunderstood worship. So what was their mistake? Their mistake was thinking that the God of Israel, Yahweh, was like the gods of all of the other nations. The, all of the, the gods of all of the other nations, they get hungry. They have needs. They need you to sacrifice to them or they're gonna get angry with you. And so you make these sacrifices to placate them. They need your attention. They need your you know, lofty and, and long prayers. But the God of Israel is different. He doesn't need you. There's nothing that you have to give him that he doesn't already have himself. So then what's the purpose of worship? What's the purpose of 
fasting and, and Sabbaths and, and sacrifices? That's an important question. This is a theme that Isaiah wrestles with all the way back in chapter 1. God says, what are your sacrifices to me? I've had enough of them. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. I hate your holidays and your feasts. I'm weary of them. Why? Because their hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And here in chapter 58, verse 3, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You seek your own pleasure. Your worship is about you. You oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. So what's the deal? What's worship all about? Well, for the God of Israel, worship is not about you giving something that he lacks. Worship is about you being transformed by who he is. In worship, we honor God for who he is in our prayers and in our songs. In the celebration at the table, we worship God for who he is, and he transforms us so that we become like him. And so here's the connection to injustice. If they're worshiping, and then going and oppressing their workers, then transformation is not happening. They've, they've misunderstood. They don't understand that God is a God of justice, that God is a God who creates us as beings of infinite dignity and worth, that God is a God who has a special concern for the poor, a special concern for the poor, not because they're holier, not because they're more important, but because they are more vulnerable. They are more likely to have their infinite dignity obscured. And so the Lord has a special concern for them. Throughout the first five books of the Bible, the law, there are these provisions made over and over again for the poor, doing good to the poor, even things like that we would call charity, like feeding the hungry and, and, and clothing people. The Lord doesn't call that charity. He calls that justice. This is what you owe to the poor. He has a special concern for him. This is who he is. He is a God of justice. And to, sh to go and commit injustice shows that you haven't gotten that. You've not been transformed. You don't know who you're worshiping. And so God reframes the, the kind of worship that he's actually looking for. Verse 6, he says, look, if you're going to fast... If you're going to deprive yourselves, then do it like this. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless into your house. When you see the naked, cover him. These are the kind of actions that reflect God's character. These are the kind of actions that show that you know who he is. A just people reflect a just God. A just people reflect a just God. This was Israel's calling. This is why God revealed himself to her, that she would become a light to the nations, that the nations would be blessed through her. And it's interesting in Isaiah 
that the description here, it's not specific. Like, like we don't know what was exactly happening in that culture that, that made Isaiah write these words. We have some idea that he, he's writing about this situation after the exile, because later he's going to talk about rebuilding. But we don't know what was exactly happening. And so what that tells us is that this is a timeless teaching for the whole of Israel's life and for the whole of our lives in the church. A just people reflect a just God. Worship is about encountering who God is and being transformed by him, especially as we take on in our lives his concern for justice for the poor. And the rest of this chapter, I mean, it's this beautiful and and restorative picture. Your light shall break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. It's so beautiful, it seems too good to be true. And it was. It was. It was too good to be true. The weight of injustice was too much. Israel was was too caught up. They were too entrenched. They were too ignorant. They were too greedy. They were too selfish. They, They could try to loose themselves from injustice and wickedness, but they couldn't do it. And don't you often feel the same way? Don't you often feel that? You read, you know, a bunch of articles before you go to bed, and you're like, man, I'm just depressed. I'm just depressed. How in the world? There are so many problems in the world. There are so many sins that have been committed. How could we ever fix them? The weight of injustice is just too much. I mean, you think probably of of any generation that has ever lived, we are more focused on our entrenchment in injustice, probably than than any generation that's come before. More aware of our impact on the environment that has, you know, the worst effects on the poor, of the effects of racism, of the way our economy is is bound up in these systems that rely on low-wage workers on the other side of the world, the way we fail to care for the most vulnerable in our own society, even the ones mentioned in Scripture, widows and orphans and immigrants and foreigners, the disabled, the sick. And you put all of this together, and the weight of injustice feels like it's just too much. It's too much. You cannot fix injustice. I cannot fix injustice. We cannot fix injustice. And someday we will die, and likely these injustices will still be here. That's the despair of our situation. And Isaiah is going to talk about this despair. Chapter 59, verse 1. Look there. He says, look, the Lord's hand, it's not shortened that it can't save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But here's the problem. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Verse 9. 59, verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not catch up to us, overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness 
stands far away. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. I think this despair is something that many of us feel, right? And it affects us in different ways. So you think about, like, young people, students growing up right now, and these skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety. We know that part of that reason is because they've grown up incredibly aware of all of these injustices all around them that pervade their lives. They grow up hearing that you're responsible to do something, but what they feel is there's nothing I can do that would even make a dent. And so they feel that despair. You know, for others of us, we feel the weight of injustice, all the problems in the world that we try to give answers to, but we can't fix, and we just feel paralyzed. Like, I don't know what I would do. I have no idea where to begin. And then that despair affects, you know, some others of us. We become Pharisees. We become hypervigilant, where we know all about all the issues. We know all of the words to say. We're incredibly conscious about how we live our lives. We correct others and the things that they say, often online and social media. And all of that vigilance is driven by shame. All of that vigilance is driven by the terrible thought that we might be part of the problem. And so that, that Pharisaism is all a way to deal with that shame and say, no, 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 the problem is those people out there, not me. We all respond to this despair in different ways. We all need an answer. Isaiah 59, again, verse 15, the second half, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Isaiah's wrestling. Isaiah, Israel has this calling on the one hand and an inability to fulfill that calling on the other. And so he thinks, but this can't be the way the story ends. This can't be the way Israel's story ends. Surely God is going to be faithful to Israel, but how? And he begins prophesying and writing about one person, a servant of God, a true son of Israel that succeeds and is faithful where Israel failed. And several hundred years later, several hundred years after this was written, on a Saturday, a man in Nazareth walks into the synagogue and they hand him this scroll. They hand him Isaiah's writings. And he stands up and he reads from Isaiah 61.1. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as he sat down, everybody in the synagogue turned to look at him, to see what he would say. And he began to say to them, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There's no Jesus without justice, but there's also no justice without Jesus. There's no justice without Jesus because the weight of injustice, it's too heavy. We can't overcome it. We are powerless in the face of it. 
but Jesus is not powerless. And if you want to see what Isaiah 58 looks like in action, this, this combination of true worship and a commitment to justice, look at the Gospels. Look at the life of Jesus. See the way that he welcomes the outcasts and the foreigner. Women and children, see the way that he gathers them to himself and relieves their suffering. See the way that he challenges Pharisees for their, their rigid interpretations of the law that miss the deeper meaning of the law. See the way that he identifies with the poor. Foxes have dens and birds have, have nests, but the Son of Man is homeless. He has no place to lay his head. Jesus embodies Isaiah 58, and then he dies. He dies, but Isaiah saw what would happen. In Isaiah 53, he pro prophesied, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for them. The true son of Israel who fulfills Israel's calling. Does your view of justice depend on the cross? Could you articulate to somebody else what you think about justice? Could you, could you describe your thoughts about justice without using the cross? Because if you do, then your picture of justice is incomplete. It's lacking. It's going to leave people in despair. This is Isaiah's message throughout his writings. Left to our own, we are in despair, but we are not left to our own. We are not left to our own. You think of every injustice that breaks your heart of slavery and racism, misogyny, uh, colonialism, abuse, abortion, all of this, if you pile up all of it, can anything atone for that? Can any right actions make up for all of these wrongs? And the truth is, no, not for you and me. But for him, the answer is yes. The blood of Jesus can atone for the sins of history. It can atone for the sins of the present. This is the folly of the cross. Amen? There is nothing we could ever do, but he's done it all. His blood covers all of it. There's no place on this earth that his grace does not reach. There is no oppression on this earth where his word of liberation will not have the final word. There is no bad news that is not countered by his good news. Does your view of justice depend upon the cross? It should. It should. He's the only one who can heal and redeem our physical world, our physical bodies. He is the only one who can take the guilt that you feel and remove it from you, taking it into his own body on the cross. He is the only one that can remo remove dividing walls, barriers, not just between races and classes, but he is the only one who can remove a dividing wall between oppressor and oppressed so that those two can have reconciliation, so that those two can eat at the same table. He's the only one who can defeat the great enemy of our souls. He's the only one who can defeat evil and sin and Satan and even death. 
Does your view of justice depend upon the cross? It should, because without it, we are stuck in despair. The weight of injustice is too heavy. Either it's going to crush you and, and make you just feel this debilitating paralysis where you don't know where to begin. Maybe you just stop thinking about justice altogether. That's just a political thing. Either it crushes you, you end up in paralysis, or it turns you into somebody who crushes others because they're not keeping up with you. They're not keeping up with the things that you care about. Those are the two options without Jesus. But with Jesus, there is hope. With Jesus, we have something to offer a culture in despair. Because if justice is not up to you, if justice is up to Jesus, then you're free. You're free. Not free to not care, not free to be passive, but you're free to discern. If justice is something that God is doing in Jesus, then it's not up to you. You can be relieved of the burden of, you know, that pressure of feeling like you have to know everything about every issue everywhere. You can be relieved of the burden of guilt that you feel living in a wonderful place like Wheaton. Have you ever felt that, that Wheaton guilt? What a nice place to live. You don't need to bear that guilt. You don't need to bear that shame. You can be grateful to live here. Would that every child could grow up in a community as safe and supportive as this one. You don't need to bear that guilt. Jesus has borne it all. You are free to discern, to ask questions like, where has God placed me? Who am I responsible to? To think of your own children, to think of aging parents, they're your first responsibility. Your, your first call of justice is to do right by them. Who am I responsible to? And then what concerns weigh heavily upon my heart? What opportunities are in front of me? How can I learn to pray about the things that grieve me? If justice is not up to you, if it's up to Jesus, then you're free to discern, Jesus, what's the small role that you would have me play? And you can be driven not by shame or guilt or anxiety or dread, but you can be driven by God's own heart for justice, and you can experience the freedom of joining him. He invites you to participate in this work with him. That's the gift. We get to work with him in his process of rebuilding. And in Christ, you will be called repairer of the breached. In Christ, you will be called restorer of streets to dwell in. Not because of your power all by yourself, but because you're partnering with him in his power. My friends, this is a prophetic message for our culture. This is a prophetic message for us. We need this. That there's no gospel, there's no Jesus without justice, but there's also no justice without Jesus, without the cross, without the atonement. We might be powerless, but God is not. We don't need to sink into despair. 
And so Church of the Resurrection, may we be a people who are committed to worship, transformational worship, where we encounter the God of justice and where that, that justice then flows out of our lives, a just people that reflect a just God. And may we trust. May we trust that our labors, they are not in vain. The victory has already been won, and our good works, as small as they might be, our good works, as small as they might be, they are signs. They are signs that point forward to the kingdom that is coming and indeed is already here. Let me close with the words of Isaiah, chapter 42, words written about our Lord. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He will bring forth justice. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.